All right, turn with me over to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 50. We're going to look at verses 4 through 6. The title of the sermon is Righteous Living and Redemptive Suffering. Righteous Living and Redemptive Suffering. Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 through 6. The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may, that I may, know, that I may know how to sustain the weary with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. Six, I offered my back to those who want to beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled up my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Lord, we ask for your blessing as we study your word. Amen. Three things in this passage about which I want to speak. One, Christ's willingness to, to offer his mouth, to offer his ears, and then to offer his body. What we have here is Isaiah prophesying about what the Messiah would do and who he would be, the kind of person he would be that would qualify him to then be the redemptive benefit for all of mankind. So what we see here are the things he needed to do in order to be the sacrifice for us. And Isaiah, I don't think I would have much argument from theologians on this, probably is the one prophet who prophesies most and most accurately, and not, not, not that any prophet prophesies inaccurately, but with specificity about who the Messiah would be. And, and with great frequency. But that did not come without cost from my perspective. Meaning the information that Isaiah got didn't flow to everybody. There were a bunch of prophets throughout the generations. But the information he got didn't flow to everybody. And the amount of information he got. I mean, we've got 66 chapters of the book of Isaiah. That's a lot of prophecy. The amount of information he got is phenomenal. But it didn't come without cost. What we see is in the first six chapters of Isaiah, he's very, he's very pointed in his prophetic utterance and very, very accurate. But he's talking about the people in general. There's nothing in the first five chapters, up to, up to chapter six, nothing in the first five chapters that talks anything about the Messiah. He may make some reference in terms of application, but there's nothing very specific and pointed. Chapter 6, things change for Isaiah. His king just passed away, died. Uzziah, great king, 51 years of leadership. An outstanding king, not the best king who had been, David was that. But this is the one who had been good the longest. Had a phenomenal reign, did some things that were very innovative, created, we believe, at least in the Middle East, the first catapult, something, an instrument of war, and had some other things that he did administratively in terms of city management. He was outstanding, and he loved God. But at the end of his life, he made some mistakes, one in particular that cost him his life. He was the only king Isaiah knew. Isaiah was born in the middle of his reign. But Isaiah had become the foremost prophet in the nation. Nobody had spoken as well as Isaiah about what God had to say to the people. And he's there 
uh, in the nation without a king. He's in transition in that Jotham, who was Uzziah's son, was now going to be the king. And we see through Jotham's reign that Jotham wasn't as good as his dad. And generally speaking, you can tell. I mean, you look at dad and you say, you're amazing. You look at son, you say, eh. If the son doesn't measure up, everybody knows it. Which makes next leadership uh, very precarious for anybody who has to follow it. You want the son to be as great as the dad. And with respect to, to monarchies, that had happened before. David was phenomenal. Solomon took it to another level. And everybody was saying, okay, he's a kid. He doesn't know what he's doing, but I'll follow him. Stunning, stunning. So it had happened before. But nobody was saying that about Jotham. Nobody. Isaiah winds up in the presence of God. He goes to church and he says, Lord, my king just died. And I don't know what to do. That's Isaiah chapter 6. And he said, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord seated high and exalted on his throne. You know, God can appear any way he wants at any time. He can do the burning bush thing like he did with Moses. He can just talk to you like he did with Abraham. He can show up in a cloud like when Solomon dedicated the temple. He can appear any way he wants. But it's interesting that he appeared to Isaiah as one who was seated on the throne. Why? Because Isaiah had concern about who was going to be seated on his throne. And when he was thinking about Jotham being seated on the throne after his daddy, Uzziah, insecurity filled his soul. And so God had to show him who's really in charge. I want you to know I'm on the throne. And then the angels began to make clarification about how, how extensive the rule of God was. Holy, holy. These seraphim showed up, two of them. And they were magnificent creatures, magnificent. We're not talking about fat babies with wings here. They, they were magnificent. Six wings just huge beings and, and their wings flapped and you could hear them resound in the temple and one shouted to the other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Then the other echoed it and they went back and forth and their voices were so resounding it says that the temple shook. And Isaiah was just watching this thinking, wow, God really is in charge and there is no end there's no border to the expansion of his kingdom. The whole earth is full of his glory. He rules over all. And so now he was being upgraded in terms of who really was in charge. Even though Jotham may be coming, the Lord was in charge. Oh, Isaiah was feeling pretty good. But at the same time, he was feeling pretty good. He was also recognizing who he was not. When you get in the presence of God and, and, and you see him, like you've never seen it before, you recognize some things that you hadn't seen before. And it makes you think, wow, he's bigger, he's better. That's amazing. But as you see him, you see what you're not. You recognize, ooh, uh, I need to clean some things up, God. I didn't see you like this before. And I want you to know I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm to fix that. I'm gonna fix. And Isaiah says this in the presence of God. Uh, I'm a man of unclean lips. And this was the chief prophet of the nation. This was a guy who was supposed to speak as clearly and as purely as anybody. And he says, I, my lips are met. My words have not been full of faith. I've looked, I've been living in this pandemic and all I've been doing is complaining. 
One thing after another. Oh, it's bad here. Oh, I might lose my job there. Oh, look at this. We ain't got enough money here. Oh, somebody's sick there. Oh, I might get the disease, the, the, COVID. Oh, my lips haven't spoken well at all. I haven't been filled with faith thinking about who was going to be next in leadership. All I've been doing is complaining about losing my king. He realizes he has not used his mouth well. And then he says, the people out there that I serve, they're worse. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. He recognizes his need. I'm going someplace with this. The angel, upon Isaiah's recognition, takes some tongs. And he goes to the altar upon which were coals. And he picks up one of the coals. Now, if an angel has to use tongs to pick up a coal, how hot is that coal? And, and then Isaiah's thinking, what you going to do with that coal? Why'd you pick it up? What, what, what you? And he begins to approach Isaiah because the remedy to Isaiah's problem of unclean lips is purification. And the way he was going to purify him is to touch that, that, those lips with that coal. I, I'm just letting you know, the angel would have had to chase me all around the church. I'm sorry, I'm just not that sanctified. Dude, really? No, come on now. Okay, I, I know I don't, but, but that's the remedy? Give me some list to read. I can fix this thing. You're going to put a coal in my mouth? Your lips have so many nerve endings. It's the most, one of the most sensitive parts of your body. You're going to... He lets them. Then the Lord says... I got a message I need to send the people. This is Isaiah 6. I got a message I need to send the people, but I don't have anybody to go. Isaiah says, I'm ready now. Here I am. Send me. And all of a sudden, his, his whole, that the way he hears, because he now can speak well, changes. Isaiah 7, first prophetic word he gives about the Messiah, virgin will be with child. Isaiah 9, there will be no end to the increase of his government. His name will be called Wonderful. Counselor, mighty God, eternal Father, Prince of Peace. I mean specificity about the Messiah. Listen, you want to speak about Jesus? Well, you're going to have to have the angel touch your lips with a coal. It should not just be good theology. You're going to have to have some purification. Isaiah went on throughout the rest of his prophetic ministry detailing who the Messiah would be with more specificity than any other prophet with the kind of frequency that God allowed him to speak. Outstanding. And here we get to chapter 50. He details how the Messiah was going to be qualified to be the sacrifice. And this is a good picture on how we can qualify ourselves to be of redemptive benefit to the world by living right so we can sacrifice for their well-being. He says the Messiah would do this. He would be one who would have the tongue of a disciple. He'd have the ear of a disciple. And he would offer himself for the benefit of others and not fight back. He said, Lord, you've given me the tongue of a disciple. Which means he had to have an upward focus for God to give him a downward benefit. My tongue is not what it should be. And Lord... I don't want Adam to dictate what I say. Please, let me say only what you say. And Jesus said only what the Father said. 
Only what the Father said. He had the tongue that was disciplined. That's what it means to be a disciple, a disciplined follower. He said only what Daddy said. And if you want to speak the words of God, I'm not talking about just quoting scripture. I'm talking about taking what you know to be true in the Bible and applying it properly to your life so that your circumstances can change or you can change in front of your circumstances. If you don't know, then you need to read because that's where God has said what he needs to tell you. It's in his word. Thus, you need to read your Bible every day to find out what he says so your tongue can be disciplined. You've given me the tongue of a disciple, and why? So that I can take my words and fashion them so that if I find somebody who just might be on the verge of quitting, I can speak one word to them and pull them back from that precipice. With one word, I can sustain the weary. And this is... We've got four books, and most of them are repetitive. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Four books about what the man said, Jesus. That's it. That's not a lot for the Son of God. But what he said... The words he spoke were so powerful. He could say more in four words than somebody can say in an entire chapter. Why? Because he had a disciplined tongue. And he was willing to give himself to the benefit of others by making himself available to speak and help that his words actually came straight from the throne. He obeyed God with the words of his mouth. And may I say, your words are really important. They are important. Paul in, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 talks about his difficulty. He says we've been persecuted, not abandoned, struck down, not destroyed, uh, forsaken, uh, not, uh, 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 abandoned but not forsaken he talks about the difficulties through which he went but he always characterizes his difficulty within the, the, the context of faith he said yes I've been through difficulty but God's been with me I, I, I struck down but I wasn't destroyed with us when, we, when people ask us how we're doing oh I'm struck down struck down just Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm down low sick in my back. That's what my daddy used to talk. Down low sick in my back. No faith. Just an articulation of facts. That not in the context of truth. Because truth is much bigger than your facts. Your facts might be those which stare at you in the face, but the truth is what God says about your facts. You need to make sure you incorporate truth so that your facts can understand how they need to comply. Are you listening to me? Paul says, I got, he said, therefore, he says, when I speak, I believe. And he quotes a passage out of Psalm 116, where the psalmist was going through difficulty, and he said, I believed, therefore I spoke. And what the psalmist is saying is, when I spoke, I believed, which gave me the opportunity to speak well. If you do not combine faith with what you say, then you may be 
just confirming the elements of doubt in your life that you don't want to see come to pass. Paul says, when I speak about my difficulty, I don't do it outside of the context of faith. When I speak, I believe when I speak. Your words can shape your future. I'm not talking about some manipulative environment where you can just name it and claim it. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is making sure that you are approaching your circumstances every day of your life, not just looking at the difficulty and and defining your life by it, but looking at how God wants to bring you through the difficulty, saying there's a Red Sea that's impossible to cross, and I've got Egyptians at my back, says the Israelites, but I know God is going to do a miracle. Because he brought me out of Egypt not to have me die here. He wants to bring me into the promised land. So I don't know how I'm going to get across this Red Sea, but I know he's not going to let me die at their hands, and he's not leaving me here. So God, I trust you for whatever has never happened before to happen now. That's the way I'm talking. You believe when you talk about your impossible circumstances. You believe the tongue of a disciple He says, you've given me the ear of a disciple. You awaken me morning by morning. Whoo, how about that? I know your alarm clock gets you up, but what do you hear next? You hear the word of God? Are you listening? Lord, what do you want to do today? Today's not like yesterday. I've never stepped into this river today. Oh, I know it's the same workplace, same car, same people, but it's a new river. Tell me what you want to do today. Help me. I need to listen. Again, you need to get in your Bible. You need to read so you know how God sounds so you can hear him during the day, not just in your devotional life, though you need to hear him in your devotional life and you need to have a consistent one. You need to be able to hear him outside of your devotional life with the cacophony of sounds and all the other voices that are trying to capture your attention. You need to be able to to discern the voice of God in your life. But if you don't know what he sounds like, you won't recognize it, though he is speaking. He's given you the ear of a disciple. He wants you to use it. My son was 17, Joseph, my eldest. Basketball in high school, senior. They were down by like two at the half, uh, coming up to the half, and he had the ball and about four seconds left. Came up to the three-point line, dribbled across half court, saw the clock winding down, and he took a a three-pointer, you know, probably about a foot behind the three-point line, and he banked it in. What that means is it went off the bank board first and then went in the basket. Now, I said from where I was, as everybody was cheering because it was a home game, everybody was cheering. I said from where I was sitting amidst all the other fans, I said, boy, you got to call that. <laughs> now, for those of you who don't know, you, nobody banks in a three-pointer. You, you, you swish it, it rims around, but you don't bank it in. That's luck. So I said, boy, you got to call that. From the other end of the court as he was running down, he looked at me and said, I did. (laughs) And I sat there. I said, oh, okay. That's impressive. After the game, I got him in the car driving home. I said, boy, how did you hear me with all those people screaming? He said, dad, I can pick out your voice when there's a crowd. Why? Because he's heard me all his life. You ought to be able to pick out the voice of God amidst the cacophony of loud sounds that are trying to capture your attention. Why? Because you've heard him. 
read your Bible every day so you know what he sounds like. Giving me the ear of a disciple so that I can be obedient. He was listening so he could obey, not just because he wanted to hear. He wanted to know, what are my marching orders? What do I need to do next? He said, so I can obey, and I will not turn back. I'm not going to repent from my commitment to you, my God, even though the the requirement might be difficult, even though you're asking me to do something that's going to cost me greatly. I want you to know, whatever I hear from you, I'm going to do. I will not turn back. And I will be obedient. Jesus speaking well, serving people with the words of his mouth by sustaining the weary with the word, giving his ear to God, and then that with the intent of obeying and living an obedient life then qualified him to do next. Verse 6. I gave my back to those who wanted to beat me. I gave my face as they pulled out my beard and spit in it. Because he was perfect, he did nothing wrong. He obeyed because he spoke well. He didn't ever say anything that was out of line. And he did well because he heard from God and did what God wanted him to do. He did it perfectly. That then allowed him to be the sacrificial benefit for all of us. Isaiah's trying to lay out why he was the lamb that could be the one who would be sacrificed for us. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, John talks about. Why? Because he lived perfectly. If he had done one thing wrong, if he had said one thing errantly, if he had done one thing wrongly, it would have disqualified him from being the sacrifice for us and he would have had to pay for his own sin because he blew it. He would have been no different than Adam or any of Adam's kids but because he lived perfectly. It then allowed him to be your substitute, my substitute. He could take on our sin because he didn't have to die for his own. And this is why Isaiah is laying this out. This is why the Holy Spirit is inspiring him with the qualifications that that are necessary for Jesus to be the sacrificial benefit for us. And as we press toward Easter, I want you to be, I want you to, to come into a place where you amplify the idea of what it means for Jesus to be your all when it comes to making you whole how he died for you and why. It says here, gave his back and his face. Stay with me a minute. Moses, best leader in the Old Testament, none better. was on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments from God in the valley the people began to play the harlot. Goes down to the valley, <clears throat> takes care of business, but right afterwards goes back up to God. God has a conversation with him and says, you know, I think I'm going to destroy these people. I'm going to do away with them, and I'm going to start over with you because they have not appreciated anything I've done. I delivered them from Egypt. They didn't like it. I opened the Red Sea. They they didn't appreciate it. They are turning away from me at every opportunity, even though I've done more for them than I've done for any other people in the history of earth. I'm I'm going to kill them, and I'm going to start over with you. Now, when God gives a proposition like that by way of conversation, please understand, he's not looking for advice. He knows all. He's not looking to have a conversation in dialogue about what's best. He knows what's best. He's doing this in order for you to find out whether you know what's best. 
Now Moses had been one who tried to deliver the people of Israel by his own hand. Years ago, like 40. He was there in Egypt, an Israelite, born Israelite, but brought up in the house of Pharaoh. At the age of 40, he recognizes his DNA, that in, in real contrast to his upbringing. He sees an Egyptian taskmaster beating up on a Hebrew slave. He kills the taskmaster and buries him in the sand. Thinking that he had now garnered some credibility with the Israelites, he sees two Hebrews fighting one another the next day. He says, stop, don't you know that you're brothers? The Hebrews say, are you going to kill us just like you killed the Egyptian? He realizes, oh, they, they don't like me. I thought I did something for them, but they aren't, they aren't shouting my name. And now I'm a fugitive from my own government because I killed one of us, one of, their, one, one of my Egyptian friends. I got to get out of Dodge because I don't have a place to go. That's how he winds up in the wilderness. Shepherding sheep for the next 40. He tried to take matters into his own hands and bring about deliverance through murder. God wanted to know, how much have you changed? Do you know how much you've changed? I'm about to wipe these folk out and start over with you. The old Moses probably would have said something like this. Good idea. You know, they haven't thrown me a pastor's appreciation month. They haven't said thank you to me. They haven't even given me a birthday party. Every time I turn around, they're trying to overthrow my leadership. They're talking about going back to Egypt. They don't appreciate anything. Good idea. Wipe them out. You can start over with the Mosites. I like the sound of that. <laughs> That's the old Moses. This Moses says, oh, no, 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 don't, don't, don't do that. Um, they're going to say you were able to bring him out, but weren't able to bring him in, and you're going to get a bad rep. And on top of that, I don't want to reach my destiny by myself. I didn't, I didn't quit my job as a shepherd just to go into the promised land by myself. I could have done that on my own. It's lonely coming to your arrival, your ultimate place by yourself. God, don't do it. And Moses intercedes for the people. God says, okay, I won't. Now Moses thinks he's changed God's mind. But all God has done is let Moses see how he has changed. Moses thinking he's on a roll now because he got God to change his mind says this. Well, Lord, why don't you show me your face? Let, let's step it up a little bit. I want to know more about you. And God says, well, you see my face, you got to die. Why? Because it seems that seeing the face of God, you enter into your ultimate destiny, which is with him. Or <laughs> someplace else. But you don't stay on the planet. And he says, I can't let you see my face because you're going to die. You, you, you pass on from everything that is future here right into his presence. Your ultimate future. I need you to be here. But I will show you my backside. And the backside was so glorious that God had to put him in the cleft of the, of the mountain. Had to put him, had to shutter him in. And he said, I will let my goodness pass before you. Interesting. Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We call them the Pentateuch. Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, he was there for. The last part of Deuteronomy, he wasn't. He died. Somebody finished it. Genesis, he was not. He wasn't alive when Abraham was alive. He wasn't alive when Adam was alive. He wasn't there for any of it, yet he wrote the history. 
How did he know about, you can get the general history, but how did he get the intimate conversations between Abraham and Sarah about whether they were going to have a child this time next year? And, and when God told them, told them that, Sarah laughed in the tent. How did Moses know? How did Moses know that Hagar uh, had run from Sarah and in her running because she was mad at how Sarah was treating her, and rightly so, Sarah wasn't treating her well. Her son, she went out into the wilderness without any, enough water, and her son was about to die. And she said some things, Lord, I can't, I can't bear to see my son die. A prayer to God. Nobody else heard it. Nobody else heard it. And she goes a distance away because she couldn't bear to see him die. And God says, I'm going to make him a great nation. Prophesies to her, shows her a well where she can get water, saves them, just outstanding. How did Moses know? I think when God says, I'm going to show you my backside, I, I think that's a metaphor for history. I'm going to show you what's behind. If his face is the ultimate future, I'm going to show you what happened yesterday. And for the next 40 days, where by the first 40 was God doing some amazing things and revealing what the Ten Commandments would be and how the nation should be together. The second 40 was talking about, let me tell you what happened. And he says, uh, he allowed his goodness to pass before him. The goodness of God can never be amplified more than when he talks about the mercy he extends to humanity that deserves judgment. And over and over and over and over and over again in the book of, uh, of Genesis, you see God extending his mercy when people didn't have a clue. Mercy on Jacob who didn't have a clue. Mercy on Adam and Eve who didn't have a clue about how to reorient their life. Mercy on Nimrod who was a horrible leader yet God had mercy on him. Mercy on Abraham and Sarah. Mercy on every his goodness in the midst of man's frailty and fallibility. Moses was penning the entire thing I think. His backside was history. What does that have to do with a sermon? How about Jesus saying, I gave them my back? Why? It says, by his stripes we were healed in 1 Peter 2.22. His stripes were on his back. When God thinks about your history, he's not holding you accountable anymore. When he thinks about your history, he's got your back because he gave him he gave them his. Are you listening to me? He redeemed your past. He took all of your history and took it on himself and said, I'm paying the price for everything you've done wrong. Is there anybody in the room that wakes up some morning in your life and realizes what you did when you were 16? You didn't tell mama, you didn't get caught, but you know it was really messed up. And you're just hoping, I hope nobody ever finds out what I did. Some of y'all were too good for those kind of memories. Good for you. <laughs> Glad I wasn't. There are so many things in our past that we hope never run after us and catch us. But we feel them. And Jesus says this, I offered my back to fix your history. 
That's what I am showing you now. I showed Moses the view of history that, that allowed him to see the goodness throughout the generations. I'm showing you what it looks like for your history to be restored and helped. Forgive it. That your stuff you don't have to suffer for because I choose to. And his face pulled out his beard. Suffered frontwise that your tomorrows can be better than your yesterdays. I've thought about what your future looks like. I should not be living the future that I've been living. Meaning for the past 20, 30, 40, this, this week actually marks the 40th year of my being right with God. Happened in the second, third week of March in 1981. Pretty cool. But I never thought I'd be here, and I surely didn't think you would be. I was just hoping maybe I could preach well enough to have a church of a couple hundred and make mama happy. Maybe. I didn't think much of myself at all. And I still don't. Because whatever God has wrought through me, he has wrought. It hasn't been me. All I've done is surrender. My competencies cannot commend me as being somebody who could build this. None of them. God has done exceedingly beyond what I could do. He has helped my history. Excuse me. He has helped my future. And because I have confidence about what he has done for me as of yesterday and today, I know that my tomorrows are going to be filled with more than I have today. And that's why I can plan for what we're going to do in D.C. Because I've seen God do it yesterday. Future. Past. Fixed. Doors are going to open for us, not because we deserve them, but because he suffered. Our past is not going to come up and bite us. Why? Not because we don't deserve it, but because he suffered. Judgment is not in our future. It's not in our past. Blessing. Surely grace and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. That's what the psalmist said. Because Jesus lived in such a way as to speak well, to minister to people, to hear well with the purpose of obedience and live perfectly. It qualified him to be the one who could ultimately fix your past and set your future. Let's worship him for that. Let's worship him for that. Father in heaven, I love you. Thank you for your grace and mercy. Inspire us and help us understand how much you care for us. And how you have done all you possibly can to fix us.